Welcome to the latest episode of Rulebooks and Roadmaps, our FH Brussels podcast hosted by me, Jim Brunston, with guests drawn from among my esteemed colleagues in the office and beyond. Our continuing mission on this pod to mine the political origins of EU policy issues, to dig out the fundamentals of tricky EU debates, and to map out the dependency chains that link often disparate topics. All of which is a hint at what we will be talking about in this episode. Namely, the EU's quest for secure access to critical raw materials. It's a topic I'm going to be discussing with our podcast guest star, Gavin Walsh, specialising in energy and industrial policy on the energy team here at FH Brussels. Welcome, Gavin. Hello, Jim. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on board. So, Gavin, just to set the scene for our discussion, it's as if, basically, there were a list of essential ingredients that the EU is looking for, for making yourself an independent, innovative, tech-driven economy. The thing is, everyone is shopping at the same store. So what this episode is going to be about is how key minerals, or critical and strategic raw materials in EU speak, underpin a lot of the EU's ambitions for its economy going forward further into the 21st century. And how these critical materials, from the EU's point of view, represent a vulnerability in the bloc's hopes of competing with China, the US, and others in the technologies of the future. So what are we talking about here? Just to give some examples, lithium is a key component of modern batteries in everything from smartphones to electric cars. Cobalt is a key part of those lithium-ion batteries too, while gallium, a bit less of a household name, provides light-emitting diode backlighting in your smartphone or watch. But if the current industrial revolution depends on access to these substances, then it is quite a different industrial revolution to the one we saw in the 19th century. Then Europe had an abundance of the basic building blocks, iron, steel, coal. Now, in an era where suspicion of foreign over-reliance appears to be politically the order of the day, the EU finds itself with little cause for comfort, given the relatively limited deposits of key raw materials so far discovered on its own territory. This means that the European Commission comes to this policy debate armed with one of Brussels' most potent weapons, statistics. Brussels has noted repeatedly in recent months that, for example, the EU sources 97% of its magnesium in China, that heavy rare earth elements are exclusively refined in China that 63% of the world's cobalt is extracted in the Democratic Republic of Congo, while 60% is refined in, yes, you guessed it, China. Fortunately, Gavin is here to guide us through the European Commission's thinking about how to address this and about how to find everything on its raw material shopping list. Gavin, to kick us off, a provocative question. Why is the EU now concerned about this over-reliance? After all, it's nothing new. Thanks, Jim. You're absolutely right. It is nothing new. Um, the Commission has been monitoring the supply since around 2011, they've been producing a, a list of critical raw materials. Um, but it's also fair to say that the role of critical raw materials in the energy and digital transition uh, has now become a bit common discourse over the past nine to 12 months. Um, you mentioned in the intro that foreign reliance is becoming a bit of the political order of the day. The issue, once again, is that we're staring down the barrel of a looming um, import dependence uh, for critical raw materials. Um, previously, that was natural gas. It's also other commodities. This time, it's for the key ingredients for a very important dish that the EU is cooking up right now, and that's the energy and clean tech transition. I guess we're all very familiar now with the topic of uh, import dependence. Our natural gas dependence was around 40% uh, around the time before the invasion of Ukraine. To put that into context, our dependence on critical raw materials uh, is around 70 to 100%, depending on the metal. This is serious, but it's also first 
uh, important to kind of understand the difference uh, between the two dependencies. So while our natural gas dependence was serious because of the infrastructure constraints and the challenges in transporting natural gas to the, to the, the European Union, it's comparatively easier to transport uh, critical raw materials to uh, the EU. So easier to transport lithium and cobalt than it is to liquefy natural gas and transport it in a container ship across the ocean. Exactly, exactly. And this is a key difference, uh, let's say. Secondly, also on a bit of an optimistic note, uh, we do have good relations with some of our producer uh, countries. It's not all bad, let's say. But that doesn't take away from the the point that there are challenges with being dependent on such a small number uh, of countries for our supply of critical raw materials. But China does have a significant dominance in the intermediary stages of critical raw materials value chain, such as processing and refining. I guess why is this now coming to the fore? A lot of the EU's energy and climate legislation is now being debated and passed. Uh, It's a top priority for the current commission. Legislation features ambitious targets. So there's also some worrying stats being bandied around uh, right now. So uh, some of those are, as you might have mentioned already, 15 times more lithium by 2030. Uh, four times more cobalt, four times more graphite, three times more nickel, just to produce a standard electric vehicle uh, and to transition away from normal combustion engine vehicles. So that sort of puts the the transition into context, uh, and that's why there's more concern as of late. Can I just ask a totally schoolboy question on this? And it goes back to to things you just mentioned. So is the issue here, in terms of sort of over-reliance now becoming a big political priority, is that because... We need more of this stuff, um, which you alluded to. So I get that like an electric car is bigger than a smartphone, so maybe we just need more of this stuff. Is it primarily because international relations are deteriorating? So we were content in previous years to have these longer supply chains um, and with certain partner countries, now we're, we're less reassured about having those same supply chains with those same partner countries. Is it a mixture of the two? Like, what, Why has this sort of suddenly gone from being something which the Commission, to the best of my knowledge, wasn't massively talking about, say, four or five years ago, to now being like, wow, this is pretty much priority, you know, up, up there in the very top bracket of priorities? I think we're moving into a, a new era, I guess, where we and certain member states, uh, such as Germany, we trusted our suppliers uh, before to a greater degree. Um, we're now sort of looking back on on every strategic dependency that we have for our commodities and we're rethinking what could go wrong there, what are the ramifications of something going wrong there. Um, I mean, look at the most recent example, apart from the, the, the elephant in the room, which is our natural gas dependence uh, on Russia, our relations with the US uh, and how one piece of... Uh, well, one massive piece of legislation in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, now causes uh, the European Commission to start to rethink our relations with the US, our trade with the US, um, and the, the role of the US as a, as a partner and a, a, you know, in the joint effort towards the energy transition. So I think it's sort of a new era of thinking as we sort of move away from a globalization period uh, and on into rethinking our strategic dependencies. Yeah, it's fascinating. This is a new, a new political outlook for, for a new era. Um, also a kind of audit of vulnerability, um, which is interesting, not least because audit of vulnerability sounds like it could be the title of a Depeche Mode album. Uh, but um, So moving on to the details then of, of the Commission's plan. So what is the Commission actually proposing to do about this in the, in the Critical Raw Materials Act? So 
Much of what the Critical Role Materials Act, which was proposed uh, last week, proposes a simplified permitting procedures uh, and stricter permitting deadlines um, for priority metals. So it's not a very sexy approach, but there are important targets and milestones uh, that the EU seeks to achieve by 2030. And this is really the first time the EU is officially setting out to beef up its domestic production capacity. Uh, so some of those statistics uh, or targets are um, that the EU, that the Commission wants to reach 10% of annual consumption uh, via extraction by 2030. That target is 40% for refining uh, and 15% for recycling. Currently, extraction only accounts for around 3% of, of today's consumption uh, and refining only accounts for between 0 to 20% uh, of our annual consumption. So there's some significant work to be done uh, in, in that domain. There's also targets to reduce our import dependence, uh, bolster EU-wide surveillance uh, of our critical raw material supply. That will be done via uh, company supply chain audits, uh, strategic stock reporting, and very importantly, there will be two uh, lists of metals. So there will be one priority list, and uh, one even more uh, prioritised list, which would benefit from you know, stricter permitting deadlines, etc. Um, perhaps I'll stop there before people tune out if I get into too much <laughs> legislative no, detail. No, no, thank you so much for setting that out. I, I suppose, again, sort of my, my schoolboy question about it is, is basically, given that most of this stuff is in other countries' territory and we need to somehow get hold of it, then there must be a limit to how much sort of control the EU can exert over, over supply because this stuff is not in our gift. So what can we actually do, if you see what I mean? Like, I, I understand permitting has, has a sort of role to play. Um, I'm sure sort of post-extraction of these critical materials from the ground, um, there's parts of this chain that you described which, which can happen in Europe. But, like, given that we do not have much of it and other people have lots of it, what materially can we do? I think there's, there's many answers to that question, and many people would have many different answers to that question. Um, I think refining and processing, and also recycling, are, are a big part of it. I'll use the example of rare earths here, uh, which is a, go a good example probably throughout the podcast. Um, so to provide some context, uh, rare earths are, are, is a category of metals comprised of 17 uh, different elements. You'll hear lots of people say that they're not rare, they're abundant in the earth's crust. That's correct. Um, the issue is that they're seldom found in large concentrated deposits and their geochemical qualities make them difficult to, to mine. Um, and to process uh, in a profitable manner. So some of the more important ones are neodymium, uh, praseodymium, uh, terbium and dysprosium. So those are, the, those are the heavy hitters really for the energy transition. They go into permanent magnets uh, for wind turbines, uh, for electric vehicles. They're also uh, key components in telecommunications and even nuclear fuel rods. I guess there, there's two reasons why refining and, and processing uh, is a big part of this, and that's the, the first one being EU um, mining capacity and the challenges around the timeline of, of getting projects up and running into the production stage. Um, so for mining, the average lead time from discovery to production can be up to 17 years uh, in some cases. Uh, so alone discovery, feasibility uh, studies and exploration can take up to 12 years. Um, so while the largest known deposit of rare earths uh, in Europe was discovered um, just earlier this year in Karuna in northern Sweden, um, it's going to be you know, another 15 years before that really uh, starts to actually impact the EU supply of rare earth uh, elements. The refining stage of the value chain uh, is also one of the main supply risks for the EU due to China's dominance in the sector. Uh, we mentioned that earlier. The point here is that no matter how many countries rare earth elements are, are mined in or how good relations are between the EU uh, and those producer countries, for example, Australia, uh, the US, 
they often need to pass through China to be processed. It's different depending on the type of rare earth. It's, it's slightly less for, for light rare earth elements. It's almost 100% for heavy rare earth elements, as you mentioned uh, in your intro. But China controls 80% uh, of the upstream mining of rare earth metals. But there is production in the US uh, on the West Coast. There's also production in Australia. Uh, but China really is the bottleneck, uh, though, as because, as we mentioned, it, it controls around 90 to 100 percent uh, of the processing capacity. So cooked into the, uh, the Critical Raw Materials Act is a very thinly veiled uh, target to reduce our import dependence uh, on single countries for the supply of refined metals. And that target is 65 percent. So the European Commission is trying to really bring down that dependence on China. It's very directed towards our dependence on China for those refined rare earths. Okay, so that's that's super important. So we're not just talking about the raw, raw critical raw materials. We're also talking about our imports of refined raw materials. So there is a sort of chain of, of actions taken exactly. on these minerals after they're extracted. And basically we, um, we're looking at sort of what more we can do in Europe along that chain. Um, one, one thing that's really struck me from what you said so far, Gavin, is basically there's a subtext to this, which is the green transition. Whereas I think I'd always thought about critical raw materials being crucial just for the tech transition um, more broadly. But when you mentioned, for example, how long it's going to take uh, new sources of critical raw materials to come on stream, that's relevant, I guess, because we have a 2050 climate neutrality target. So it's, well, if we're going to find these new, if it's going to take that long to get new projects up and running in Europe, then that's eating into the available years left before we face catastrophic climate change. And it sounds like from what you've said, these these minerals, they're very important specifically for technologies that help us in the transition, uh, well, towards carbon neutrality. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of puts into perspective the challenge that the EU has now is in, in supplying uh, these materials for the short term, uh, not only the medium and long term, but, you know, in the next five to ten years, there's huge supply risks um, all along that chain. And so what we'll need to do in the short to medium term uh, will be to build out uh, our relationships with third countries. And so that's also uh, a part of the European Commission strategy, uh, which it unveiled last week. And so there's an external element to that as well. Um, and so essentially the EU really needs to start cozying up the countries um, and, you know, making friends with uh, resource-rich countries and, you know, really securing those uh, supply chains of, of critical raw materials. So this is really important too, because we, and we've been sort of touching on this, because obviously we mentioned China already a lot. Um, we haven't mentioned the Democratic Republic of Congo so much, um, despite it popping up in those, those statistics I mentioned at, at the top of the pod. And there's something very interesting going on here, which is about sort of the EU managing its relationship, as you mentioned, Gavin, with third countries. And obviously the EU's got, you know, various long-standing instruments for relationships with third countries. It's got its trade policy, it's got um, EU development policy, what's now referred to more as international partnerships. Um, and more recently, it's got the Global Gateway, the sort of branded Global Gateway initiative, which was sort of conceived as a, as a rival to China's Belt and Road. So like, to what extent it, all these kind of moving parts in terms of building relationships, for example, with African countries, to what extent is this being sort of rejiggered or readapted or, in, or deployed uh, in support of this this access to, to critical raw materials agenda? Yeah, well, there, there's going to be a renewed emphasis uh, on establishing strategic partnerships with other countries. Uh, I mean, currently the EU has a strategic partnership um, with Canada that was established in uh, 2021, also with uh, Ukraine in 2021. Um, I mean, the idea of those partnerships really are to contribute to the EU security of supply, uh, considering the country's reserves and, and production uh, capacities. Um, it's also to 
ensure that the, that the production in those countries is, is environmentally friendly, uh, socially responsible uh, throughout the process. And I mean, th- there's important negotiations going on as well uh, to establish new strategic partnerships with uh, Australia that's currently being negotiated on, uh, also with Indonesia. Uh, we recently signed one with Namibia uh, and Kazakhstan. Uh, and going forward, really, you're going to be looking at uh, Greenland, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo, as you mentioned, Argentina and Chile. Uh, they'll likely uh, be on the cards as well for, for new partnerships. But also worth mentioning uh, as well is a Critical Raw Materials Club, uh, which will also be established by the European Commission. The goal there is to establish uh, supply chains with partners to bring together like-minded, uh, and I say that in air quotation marks, uh, like-minded consumer and resource-rich countries. The aim really is to enhance cooperation on exploration, uh, regulatory issues, drive innovation, promote responsible practices, for example, on labour rights, uh, and circularity, and the result will hopefully uh, be to strengthen those supply chains of critical raw materials to the EU. You mentioned also the, the Global Gateway Initiative. So this was first unveiled in December 2021. The aim really is to is to mobilise uh, around 300 billion uh, euro in public and private investments um, in specific sectors. So those sectors are uh, digital, energy, transport, specifically in emerging um, and developing countries between 2021 and 2027. And so this initiative really is an overseas extension uh, of the EU's industrial policy. Because, Gavin, that gets me to the, sort of the next thing I think that's, that's relevant in all of this, which is um, if we're talking about the EU trying to strengthen relationships with partner countries that have lots of these minerals, um, the point is other great powers, as you said, they're trying to do this as well. I mean, sorry to get all 19th century about this, but like other great sort of economic powers around the world uh, are also trying to build these relationships. And we've seen, as, as you mentioned, China being very active in, in trying to build partnerships with countries in Africa, for example, on infrastructure and other projects. So does this naturally lead us into a space of competition, basically, in sort of trying to have the most privileged partnership with Chile or trying to have the most privileged partnership with the DRC? Or is there some scope, he says, hopefully, for some sort of international harmony about how we go about securing these things that clearly all we're all going to need? I think the question there is, you know, do we have uh, the appetite for more competition? I think for some countries, we don't. I think for others, we do. Do we really have to be in competition uh, with other countries? For example, China, we probably do, because we're now in a space where we're trying to understand really what our relationship with China is. Uh, We're also trying to do that uh, with regard to the US as well. I think the relationship right now between the EU and the US is quite strained. So uh, you might see some elements of of tension between the EU approach uh, and the US approach. As I say, I, I really don't think there's an appetite from the EU side um, to enter into competition again with the US. I mean, we're already gearing ourselves up for direct competition with the US. Um, well, in, on industrial subsidies, on industrial for subsidies, the Inflation Reduction exactly, Act. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the, the tidal wave that was the Inflation Reduction Act uh, is something the European Commission has already proposed on how we counter the worst effects of that. Um, that there's also a very strong narrative coming from the EU uh, towards the US um, on you know, effectively vilifying the protectionist nature of, of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the Buy America logic, uh, discriminatory subsidies, as you mentioned. And so the goal of that really is to, is to boost manufacturing capacity domestically in the EU and try and re- regain uh, and retain some level of green industrial activity uh, within the EU. But that doesn't really seem to be what this is about with the Critical Raw Materials Act. It seems to be um, 
a bit more that the EU is fighting that fight in, in other areas. And there seems to be a bit more of an effort to, to get together with the US and establish a Critical Raw Materials Club, for example, uh, and to secure these uh, the supply of metals coming to the EU that we need to build a kit uh, for the energy transition and the transition to uh, digital uh, and clean technologies. Important to mention here as well, and, and I mean you alluded to it earlier, is that the US is also trying to, to shore up whatever capacity they had, whatever mm-hmm. domestic production uh, and refining capacity they had. Uh, in the late 1990s, the US really... Uh, wound down its its uh, metals refining and uh, production capacities. They wanted to save a bit of money. Um, it was in an era where China uh, saw the opportunity. They swept up a lot of the the extra capacity. And that's sort of where China's uh, booming dominance uh, in certain stages of the value chain now emanated from. Uh, and so the US, while yes, we may at some point find ourselves competing uh, for you know relations and and certain supplies. Uh, of critical raw materials with other third countries. They're also in a kind of wildly different uh, place than the EU, although they do have uh, more capacity uh, domestically, that's for sure. So there's some scope for the EU and the US at least to, to work together as part of this Critical Raw Materials Club, which also incidentally sounds like it could be the title of a Depeche Mode album. <laughs> uh, Gavin, look, thank you so much for joining us and for explaining all, all this to us. And well, let's see how successful this strategy is in practice over the years to come. But thanks so much. Thanks, Jim. Pleasure. <laughs>